0: Welcome to 5 Things About. Before we start, let me tell you about a new podcast called Eavesdrop on Ideas. Eavesdrop on Ideas explores themes through the lens of artists, authors and academics. Our second episode was tipping points, from viral marketing to planetary systems. We collected comments from amazing people, but the entire unedited interviews were so exciting we decided to publish them here, on the 5 Things About channel. So here they are. Enjoy! Oh, hi, I'm Brent Coker. I'm a lecturer of marketing in the Department of Management Marketing at the University of Melbourne.
1: Brent, tell us about Malcolm Gladwell's notion of the tipping point, which sets a whole lot of things into play. Tell us from the economics marketing perspective.
0: Yeah, so uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. Um, it's one of the first deep looks, actually, into this idea of what makes ideas spread. The terminology has changed a little bit nowadays, Uh, quite often it's termed viral uh, in the marketing context, we might call it viral marketing. In the old days, people called them fads and fashions and and so on. But uh, essentially, it's the same thing. So there are three main elements to what makes something become extremely popular, according to Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, The first is the law of the few. So um, according to his uh, research here, and, and by the way, uh, you know Malcolm Gladwell is not an academic, but he's an incredibly talented ethnographer. <laughs> uh, besides that, um, even though he doesn't work in academia, uh, I watched the masterclass earlier on this year of him where he's teaching uh, journalistic skills. And I think that's where his skill set lies in his ability to interview other people. And draw the correct information out of them. And then he relates that to existing knowledge. He does read academic literature, for example, uh, and then pieces it together. So, this was one of the I- really iconic uh, works, actually, into this idea of what causes um, fads or what we call now viral content. So, he's claiming there are three elements. The first is um, The Law of the Few, which is essentially word of mouth. These are people who, who tell others? We call this sharing nowadays, or word of mouth. And when he wrote this book, the internet was really in its infancy, and this idea of social media wasn't as big and prominent as it is now. uh So you know, things can spread. Uh, I think this one would have a bigger weighting nowadays, simply because word of mouth is able to spread much faster and much wider, given that we have social media now. But he outlines this uh, law of few as consisting essentially of three different types of people, mavens who are, uh, according to Malcolm Gladwell, people who who tell others about an idea or a product or a thing or a situation or whatever it is. And then there are the second type he calls, and and these are just people who like like helping other people, according to him, you know, sharing useful information is one. Um, the second type is uh, connectors, and these are what we nowadays more commonly term influencers, like you know, Instagram influencers or you know, uh, Facebook influencers. people who have a lot of followers. Of course, back then, social media didn't really exist, but um, it's the same type of concept. These people who are extremely popular and and tend to have a following, uh, and people tend to copy what they're doing and what they say and listen to what they say and so on uh and then finally salesmen and these are more this maps on to the concept nowadays of um well classic advertising i guess is is one sort of blanket term to sort of encapsulate all of this and uh, we, we call this push marketing really which is broadcasting a message uh, and there are various ways to increase the persuasion of that message using emotions, for example. So, so that's the law of a few. And then there are two other factors, according to Malcolm Gladwell, that increase the chances of an idea or something um, spreading quickly and becoming well-known. The stickiness factor, which is something unique about the phenomenon that makes it stick in the minds of people. So something unique, you know. Uh, you know, we, we've learned a lot more about this since um, he developed this theory, but um, it still holds this idea that, that something has to affect people in some way. As we say, people have to process it <laughs> in their minds uh, for it to be able to stick. So uh, there has to be something about it. And lastly, the power of context, oh. how that phenomenon spreads or, or emerges in society matters. Um, and and he really goes into quite a lot of detail at this point. Malcolm Gladwell, he, he's, uh, he's a New Yorker, for example, and he, he noticed that neighborhoods that were neglected, he uses the example of broken windows that didn't get fixed in the neighborhood, that tended to increase the crime in the neighborhood and, and make the neighborhood uh, deteriorate faster than if neighborhood had the windows fixed quickly and then he starts talking about um how the crime rate in new york dropped dramatically at some point from the 70s and 80s uh and he puts that down to simply cleaning up the subway system and removing graffiti off the uh trains for example so so the power of context is really the 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 spark that kicks everything off you know and and uh, as long as it's sticky and there are people out there from the law of few to spread that idea, then according to the theory, it reaches a tipping point, much like a snowball eventually rolls faster down the hill and gets bigger at the same time. So there's that point where something becomes exponential and really takes off.
1: Brent, can you think of examples where this has happened in the market?
0: Yeah, uh... I think um, where we've come to nowadays, I, you know, I think so. My book, for example, going viral, to, was written 16 years after Malcolm's book, and in that we there's sort of we've made a lot of progress actually in understanding how this works. And so, the basis of Malcolm's theory is is absolutely correct and hasn't been disproven. It's but the mechanisms behind what causes them have kind of evolved, and and that's really what we look at in the market now when we try and explain why things go viral, for example. So I mentioned earlier how he talks about the law of the few and there has to be people who are spreading the ideas. Well, nowadays, more often than not, uh, we call them seeds. Uh, as, you know, The way that marketers use this concept is through influencers. So influencer marketing is extremely popular now. It seems that consumers have become increasingly jaded over the years, particularly over the last decade, it seems, in terms of traditional advertising. this broadcast advertising, billboards and tram wraps and so on, where the, the brand is trying to persuade consumers to buy. And it's, you know, we have a good understanding now that consumers test tend to trust other consumers more than they trust the brand. So for example, if most people when they before they buy anything worth over hundred dollars, they go online and they read the reviews of what others are saying. And so and for that reason, concepts like influences on social media are extremely important part of the marketing mix. So a lot of stuff that tends to take off or go viral, if you trace it back, it's usually somebody with some degree of influence in there usually almost always on social media that has a lot of following and they advocate that idea and that's kind of what sparks it off and so what would be a recent example so uh, TikTok for example so TikTok's become extremely popular and it's difficult for social media platforms to become popular um, and that was driven in part by a couple of influencers who started using it to market themselves and as soon as you know humans have this tendency to want to follow and copy those people in society that um, they respect and listen to and so that kind of kicked it off um, this stickiness factor nowadays we we call that affinity so something that's missing from his book in this is this idea of ultra-relevancy. And so as marketers nowadays, we're really looking at how do we access people's value systems? Because that's where this idea of affinity and caring about something lies. There's always ideas that people hold that they dearly hold on to. They, they really care about it. They're willing to go out there and protest for it. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And so marketers are often trying to find out, well, what are those and how can we appease those in a way? So let me give you an example. So let's say uh, Billabong, uh, uh, an Aussie brand up there in the Gold Coast. So the, their typical style of advertisement is a, uh, somebody surfing in a wave, uh, in a barrel, as we call them, or a tube or whatever. That kind of stuff doesn't go viral. It doesn't really get shared. But Quicksilver, their competitor, came along. They had a, an image that was extremely similar. The only difference was they did a bit of homework to figure out what's the source of affinity for their target market, which is surfers. And they discovered that well, one thing that surfers spend a lot of time doing is talking about locations that they've surfed. So that's a great topic of conversation if you're a surfer. You know, A lot of time is spent... Talking about, oh, have you been to Mundaka in Spain? That, that's a left hander off a point and it's fantastic, you know, and that, that's the kind of conversations they have. And so, well, okay, that has to be a feature in our advertisement. And the other thing um, Surfers really cared about was the environmental health of the ocean. And so they combined those two and they had an image of somebody surfing through the barrel of a wave in an iconic location. In this case, it was Java in Indonesia uh, and showing the amount of pollution that was in the water. You could see it floating in this uh, barrel of the wave that the surfer was surfing through, uh, and that shared like crazy, and that and that uh, reached, I guess, Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point of becoming viral, uh, simply because it tapped into this idea of affinity, which which uh, Malcolm Gladwell sort of alludes to, but back then it was um, it was really the beginnings of, of getting into that idea um, and the power of context. Uh, yeah, it, it happens a lot actually, um, that a marketer will, uh, put, um, content together with the aim of maximizing engagement, as we say, in other words, people liking, commenting and sharing or sharing, hopefully. Um, uh, but it just doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and, and timing has a lot to do with it, you know, and, uh, and, and so we, we care a lot about timing nowadays, um. One of the shortcuts to timing for marketers is basing content on the back of what the media is talking about. So marketing initiatives since COVID-19, for example, have have changed and evolved dramatically in response to to people's sentiment and feelings. And, And it's not just because of a fear of You know, if we show our usual happy family having a picnic and consuming our product in the park type of advertisements that, you know, the public are going to react negatively and hate us for that. It's more that marketers now see opportunities in whatever people care about at at any time. This began actually since Greta Thunberg, the um, environmentalist from Sweden, the um, young girl, Started advocating for climate change, and in marketing we call this the Greta effect because we've really seen a strong flow-on effect from that, and in, in the way that brands are behaving. In the Effie Awards, for example, that's our big marketing awards ceremony each year. I was having a look at this. There's probably sixty percent of the gold award winners are using some sort of strategy that plays on the idea of. Um, social consciousness or, or environmental consciousness or, or, or something about an initiative that's really giving back to the community. Uh, I'll give you a, a couple of quick examples. One is Domino's Pizza. So, well, it started actually, it was a bit of an accident for them with uh, they were getting a lot of phone calls in certain neighborhoods in the US. And I think it was around Detroit when Detroit was declared themselves bankrupt as a city. They couldn't afford to repair the roads. And so they were getting a lot of complaints about their pizzas being shaken up in the box when they arrived after being delivered. And they thought about how they could do this. Well, they could take different routes, but that wasn't really going to work. So they thought, well, why don't we just fix the roads ourselves? And so they started fixing the potholes and the roads the initial benefit to them was that they would slap their brand over it. So they would fix the pothole and then spray paint uh, dominoes, helping the community over top of it. And then that went viral. Everybody started talking about that, but that, that was just context, you know, this idea that the timing was right. You know, they, they were fixing a problem. There's another one, is um, Carrefour supermarkets in France. So they're a large supermarket chain and they found that they were slipping in the ratings. Uh, They wanted to improve that. And they noticed that there was a restriction in the number of crop strains that were available for them because they wanted to sell a a wider variety of fruits and vegetables in terms of different types. And they discovered that there's there's a crop schedule in France, which makes it illegal to grow quite a few different types of fruits and vegetables there uh, and that schedule was originally developed to protect the f- the uh, the food supply in france given that the ones that were legal were more likely drought resistant and pest resistant and so on so what had happened over the years is that a lot of crop strains had actually become extinct or very near extinction because it was illegal to grow them they wanted to change that, so they set up something called the Black Supermarket where they were growing and selling these illegal crop strains illegally. And the public loved it. Then they went for a battle in the courts to get the legislation changed. Then they won. Uh, but that shot them to the, to the top of the list in terms of favorability with, with consumers as well. So those are just two examples. There are many more of brands that are contributing to society and they're using that uh, and it's all driven on the on the back of you know what is it that consumers really care about and the, the environmental one is one since covid-19 there's i've seen a insurance company that was started giving its customers free life insurance and that went really well for them as well so
1: Brent, does it work the other way? I mean, getting into the minds of the consumer is really important, and these people have reached these tipping points where they've certainly become part of the consumer consciousness. Does it work the other way? Are there points of no return in some marketing dynamics?
0: Yeah, you mean like so things go bad? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, one of my favourite quotes is from Warren Buffett, the wealthiest man in the world, depending on how Bill Gates is going that year. But he said, and this was before the internet, he said, it takes years and years to build a strong brand. And we yeah, we know that, uh, but it takes 15 minutes to destroy it. And uh, that's never been more true in this day and age of, of social media. And uh, something that's relatively new to marketing, it's this idea of crisis management because brands are fearful many times of what happens when negative sentiment gets spread really quickly on social media against them um, as a brand, a lot of brands nowadays have crisis management plans. For example, so these are these are formal documents that list exactly what to do. Because gone are the days, you know. It used to be back in the old days, uh, a brand would, you know, transgress. They, they would do something bad. You know, somebody would slip up, or, or something would happen. And then they would have a few days to organize a press conference and, you know, they would have time to sort everything out and they could slow things down and there's no rush. But nowadays, because of social media, things blow up overnight and it can be extremely difficult for brands to control that. So for that reason, many of them have these emergency plans and they list things like who's the spokesperson, who fronts up first, um, the telephone numbers of key uh, journalists, that need to be contacted um, as soon as possible. You know, they've a war room and they have teams that you know, distributed teams that come together quickly when these things happen. And usually it's the most senior person available that needs to front up and, and make a response. So somebody has to write that response quickly. So yeah, it definitely works the other way. and and, and social media is a double-edged sword. It can be great if you know how to use it. But it can be incredibly damaging to brands. There have been a lot of examples over the years of brands that have suffered um, terribly. Uh, you know, one of the worst, one of the traps that brands get into is one thing that, you know, I'm writing about at the moment is this idea of brand empathy, which is the opposite of. Um, psychopathic or sociopathic behavior (laughs) so because if you if you if you look at what a psychopath or a sociopath is it's essentially it's somebody who has no empathy for others they don't care Um, they just everything they do is all about their own interests and they're incapable of caring about others and there are evidence that some consumers are starting to view brands like that. You know, they see advertisements and they they understand that, well, essentially, isn't it true that brands just want me to get my wallet out? That's what they want my money. And they're going to do what it takes to persuade me to do that. That's a bit of a cynical view, but brands are kind of wising up to that idea. Well, what what about if the opposite of a sociopath is um, somebody who displays empathy, you know, sort of the Mother Teresa kind of um, persona. And so th- what we're seeing actually is that the brands that are doing really well are winning the awards and actually getting a, a lot of um, favor in the community are those brands that are demonstrating that, that cost. So, you know, one of the things I'm looking at is um, how cost is related to this, you know, because the danger is that brands, whenever there's a crisis they'll jump in and consumers assume that they're trying to profit off other people's suffering take for example the forest fires recently so there was a brand uh, that was offering diesel generators to those communities that were affected however they had a condition they said uh, the more diesel generators We donate is dependent on the number of Facebook likes we get. Now, to consumers, that looked like they were trying to profit off other people's suffering and it backfired horribly. And there was a a big, um, you know, negative social media storm against them that was extremely difficult for them to control.
1: My colleague, Susie Fraser, has joined us. Um, She's my co producer for this podcast and she has a question for you as well.
0: Hi, Brent. One thing I was thinking—you mentioned uh, Greta Thunberg and her role as an international environment activist. So, from on a related matter, from one perspective, we can see that brands often reference activists and social movements in their marketing. So, for instance, the infamous Pepsi incident. but do you think that um, social and activist movements can learn from brands and marketing in order to gain followers? Can movements use brand allegiances to market themselves? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they can. So one thing they have to be careful about when partnering with brands is uh, well, it's exactly that that what we call the Greta effect, which is related to this thing called um psychological obsolescence and functional obsolescence so that they sound like big nasty words but essentially what that is is brands try to persuade consumers that they need something new when they don't <laughs> and so fashion brands right so your shirt needs to be replaced we've got a new model or or cars is often used you know you you need a new car or um technical obsolescences um you know mobile phones for example at one time you could change the battery you could replace the battery well now you can't and actually they use special screws to make it very difficult for you to open the phone because they don't want you fixing it they want you to buy a brand new one and they want you to swap it so so these types of issues are causing a a problem, actually, for many brands, because the communities of people who care about that stuff is growing steadily. Um, I, I spoke on this last year. I, think, I forget who it was. It was a story I think that was being published in the local paper. I think it was. But I was quite surprised at the number of communities that are growing and forming allegiances and all against brands. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if that trend continues as consumers become more and more suspicious of brands' behavior in terms of their contribution to uh, environmental problems. If we look at the concept of waste, there's a clear relationship between waste and what brands are attempting to do oftentimes, which is convince consumers to buy more when they don't really need to oftentimes.
1: Brent, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic to hear these insights about tipping points and marketing dynamics. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne and the Centre of Visual Art. Thanks to our guest, Brent Coker. Your hosts were Dr Andy Horvath and Dr Susie Fraser. Audio engineering was by Arch Cuthbertson. This episode was recorded on the 7th of August, 2020.